Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. It's Ancient History Day today. And then Alina, who have you gone and found for us today? We've got with us Chris Davies, who is a historian and MA classical student at the Open University, and he really loves the Fishbourne Palace, and he is here to talk about exactly that. Welcome, Chris. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Boom, this is my childhood. I love Fishbourne <laughs> Roman Palace. It's epic. If you haven't been, and you haven't taken your children, and you live, I don't know, south of Watford, then be ashamed, because it is magnificent, isn't it, Chris? It is, absolutely. Uh, it's an amazing site and what they've actually managed to do with it as well, um, considering what they had to work with, uh, it's absolutely phenomenal. Um, and the history of the place and everything that goes with it, it's, uh, well, <laughs> as uh, Lena pointed out, I, I do love the place. So, uh... First of all, can you tell us what the Fishbourne Palace is? Okay, well, well obviously it's, uh, it's a palace. Um, located near the village of Fishbourne in West Sussex. Um, What's more unique about it, this is the largest Roman palace found in Britain, and it's the largest Roman residence that's actually been found north of the Alps. And to put into perspective the the size of it, it's similar in size to Nero's Golden House, and the entire site is larger than Buckingham Palace, uh, with a layout similar to Domitian's palace, uh, the Domus Flavia. That's amazing. Um, do you know who it's built for? And do we know when it was built? Um, well, so it was built uh, following earlier designs. Um, so previously, it was uh, the site was used for granaries. Um, I believe most likely part of the expanding supply lines for the legions as they pushed into Britain during the uh, Claudian invasion around about 43 uh, CE. Um, later on, two um, timber residences were built, which were offering some comfort, uh, ev- evidence that these early structures had clay and mortar flooring, for instance, plastered walls. So not necessarily permanent, but enough to sort of indicate somebody important was there. Um, this was followed in 65 CE with um, a proto-palace, a sort of an earlier, smaller uh, palace. It's a similar design to one that was discovered in Angmering in West Sussex, mm-hmm. which suggests that there were several nobles living in the area. Um, and around about 75 to 80 CE, uh, the full-scale palace was built, which incorporated the proto-palace uh, in the southeast corner. Uh, so it had been built slowly over time. The site had been developed uh, as the importance grew and the focus from invasion turned into more 
governing an occupation. Um, who it was built for is a very interesting question. The size and the opulence of the palace, what we found, it suggests to us that it was built for somebody of great importance. As I say, we're talking about a site that was similar in size to Nero's Golden House or Domitian's uh, palace, the Domus Flavia, bigger than Buckingham Palace. You're talking somebody of, of great importance must have lived there. But we don't actually know for certain who, um, which it adds to the mystery of the site, really. Uh, it's one that's uh, well, more common belief put forward by uh, Professor Barry Cunliffe, uh, who led the team that excavated the site, uh, was that it was built for a British king called Toggy Dubness or Coggy Dubness, um, with some discussion as to whether it's a, a T or a C. Um, and it's, it's mainly put this way because we know that he was in favour of the Romans. Uh, the historian Tacitus, in his book about his father-in-law Agricola, states uh, about Togidubnus that certain states were given to him as he'd remained faithful down to our own times, uh, in accordance with an old and accepted Roman tradition of using the kings as instruments of subjugating their own people. And it's possible that Togidubnus may have been brought up in Rome, which would indicate where this loyalty had come from. We know after Julius Caesar that it had been established, there was lines of communication, some trade most likely happened between uh, Roman Gaul and Britain. And early on, um, around about 40 CE period, uh, Verica, uh, Togidubnus's father possibly, uh, he was overthrown and he was a, a friend of Rome. And it's believed that Togidubnus and Verica may have petitioned to Rome for aid in restoring back the land, which provided Rome with the convenient excuse they needed to, to gain another province for the empire, you know, as if they needed much of, a, of an excuse at the time. Um, so one theory is that it was built for Verica or by Verica, uh, though if he was elderly at the time, around about 43 CE when Claudian invasion was going on, 75 to 80 CE, he, unlikely he would have survived that, which is probably the reason why they put more on Togidubnus. Um, and if the palace was built for him, he must have been very well regarded. As I say, you're talking about such a large and opulent site. Um, we know he was active in the region from inscriptions that were found in the nearby city of Chichester. Um, one particular commonly referred to as uh, Roman inscription of Britain 91 or RIB 91, um, which states that he had uh, given up uh, a temple, effectively. He'd had uh, part of the commissioning of a temple. Um, but if it wasn't him, then perhaps the uh, an owner was the governor. Uh, who, after Agricola, governed Britain called Celestius Lucullus. Um, however, despite being the prince of, uh, uh, sorry, the son of a British prince, Adaminius, he's identified as being in the area by the similar inscriptions found in Chichester. But Suetonius records that Celestius was executed around 93 CE. Uh, so, if he was the uh, person who the palace was built for, he didn't occupy it for. Uh, an extensive period of time. Um, and one other one that's put forward is uh, a Tiberius Claudius Caterus, 
who is identified as a possibility when his gold signet ring was discovered close to the site around about 1995. So talk to us about this layout, because from what I'm getting, it is incredibly, incredibly huge. <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, it's one hell of a site. I mean, what, what exists now is part of the garden um, and they've sort of covered over the uh, northern end of the palace. Um, a lot of what exists now is this taken up by private housing unfortunately um but the layout itself was four wings uh, a large central garden and the garden was surrounded by colonnades which created a peristyle which is a, a continuous porch formed by rows of columns surrounding a courtyard or the perimeter of a building um it was as i say magnificently decorated there was the mosaics of course but they also had uh, underfloor heating and internal bathhouse and the central gardens themselves are the earliest ever discovered in Britain, um, with shaped beds for hedges, trees, foundations with water supplied through ceramic piping. This isn't the sort of thing you'd do for, for your bog standard housing. Um, so again, we know that whoever owned this was considered important. Um, the gardens in particular has been a lot of work to try to create uh, what's available of it and how it would have looked. Um, we have no evidence of what would have been grown there, but they've looked to the writings such as those of Pliny the Younger, uh, who did give us great descriptions of his own gardens. Um, so they've, they've built up um, a reconstruction of this. And in 1995, they opened up a, a Roman gardens museum on the site as well. Um, but back to the actual thing. So the, the North and East Wings, would have had a series of buildings that were built around their own little courtyards um, with a large entrance built into the east wing and a large aisled assembly hall in the northeast corner. There was a, a gallery in the west wing with a large reception room which was likely used for ceremonial purposes as well as a series of state rooms and a, the south wing possibly had the owner's private quarters but the most elaborate mosaics uh, located in the north wing. Can you tell us how long was this site lost for? When was it found and how did we stumble across it? The site itself um, was found around about 1960. Um, around It was found in 1960, sorry. And it, purely by accident, uh, and Aubrey Barrett, who was an engineer working for Portsmouth Water, was, he was digging a new water main in a field near the village. And he'd uncovered several artefacts and noticeably mosaics and parts of a wall. And he realised the importance of what he'd found. So he, he stopped digging and let various organisations know as was kind of the practice back then when they discovered something. Um, and the local civic society uh, began excavations in 1961, led by uh, archaeologist Barry Cunliffe, um, or Professor Cunliffe, um, using a team of what would have been at the time amateur archaeologists. Professional archaeology hadn't really taken hold in the UK. There was a couple of organisations and steps were being taken. Um, so when we refer to them as, as amateur archaeologists, it's not so much that uh, they were stumbling in the dark, um, as opposed to they just wouldn't have necessarily had the formal qualifications that would be expected um, by modern archaeologists. Uh, for how long it had been lost, uh, the, the palace itself had um, burnt down around about uh, 270 CE, um, so about 270, 280 uh, CE. So in theory, it, it had been lost since then. We have no previous knowledge of it up until about 1960. It's mad, isn't it? 
that was just there under the surface the whole time and nobody knew. Well, that's it. This this opulent large palace, as I say, the largest north of the Alps, and uh, we we we'd lost it. It had uh, been forgotten about. I mean, whatever remained from the fire had probably been plundered, as much of the ancient sites were for building materials. But uh, yeah, outside of that, it's uh, <laughs> for all intents and purposes vanished. I find that really interesting how just randomly you can stumble across things as the same way they did with uh, Pompeii, really. They just randomly dug a hole and, oh, wow, look, okay, there's some ancient archaeological stuff under there. I mean, that's it, especially when you, you look at how notable the Romans are for their recording of things. Um, I mean, they, they noted down every detail of their lives almost. We know so much from what little writing we have. Uh, and yet, like you say, places can just vanish, um, never to be found again in some cases, or eventually because some guy was digging for laying water mains. It's, it is bizarre. Okay, so some artefacts must have been found in this extravagant and, and beautiful palace. So what artefacts were found by archaeologists when they did the excavations? Well, apart from the uh, previously mentioned gold ring, there's been various items associated with the Romans, obviously, um, notably building materials. Um, so we found like tiles, things like that. Um, probably one of the more interesting ones uh, was from a tibia bone that was unearthed in 1964. Um, but in 2017, this was identified as a rabbit bone. And radiocarbon dating carried out on the bone with modern technologies allowing us to discover so much more now and it revealed to us that rabbits which were our native to France and Spain had arrived in Britain more than a millennia earlier than what we previously thought the, these remains they showed no signs of butchering and suggest that they may have been kept as part of like a, a mini zoo an exotic menagerie of animals and it might seem like a small discovery you know so rabbits were here a thousand years earlier than we previously considered but it, it indicates just how much modern research and technology given us much greater understanding of the past um, you say that it's nothing but i guarantee you that with this is our like fourth podcast today and the 2000 year old bunny is the most exciting thing so far i love it <laughs> well that's epic it, a bunny uh, that's over 2000 years old yeah and even more than that a, a, a small bone of a rabbit has revealed so much more about our history than we previously thought. You know, like, originally it was thought that the Normans had brought rabbits over with them uh, when they, obviously, they did their own invasion. And now we're finding out, actually, about a thousand years before that, were, were rabbits already here because of the Romans. It's, it's not a massive discovery in the grand scheme of things, I suppose, but it is a, a fascinating part of our history that we didn't previously know. Um, I love this. Uh, How did bunnies change history? Well, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I wish we'd known this before we did History's Greatest Animal down the pub, because I'd have gone for the Roman bunny. I'd still have won. Oh, you stupid bear. Stupid bear. Anyway, <laughs> do you know what? I'm going to switch the next two questions around, because I desperately want to ask you this one, because my abiding memory of my visits to Fishbourne Roman Palace are the epic mosaics that's the standout feature isn't it well yes uh, that's it of all of the uh, artifacts found there the mosaics are um they're, they're the crown jewel of the site effectively um i mean they've uncovered evidence of more than 
or as many as 50 very elaborate mosaics, which it makes up the largest collection of in situ mosaics in the UK. The only thing I've ever seen comparable to it is, I, what's it called in Spain, beginning with I, in Andalusia. Yes, um, I can't think of the name actually either. But yeah, it's it, the only thing I've ever seen where you can literally you're walking around the side. And it's like, oh, another amazing mosaic. Yeah, I mean the, the mosaics themselves, they're not as uh, as necessarily um, well done as some that have come from later. Um, houses uh, later villas in even within britain um but there with the sheer number of them and the designs and everything we were seeing um indications of the fashions of the time almost uh, and it's unlikely that native britons had formed these mosaics it was unlikely that native britons had had built the proto palace or the uh, the palace itself it was most likely builders imported from from italy I say imported um, builders come over from Italy um, and Italica. That's what it's called. Yes. Near Seville for that exact reason. I just remembered as you said the word Italy. Ah, yes. yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, several of the mosaics had been built over each other and some had been discovered when restoration work was carried out on, uh, on some of them. So they've lifted them up to uh, restore them and, um, make sure that they're going to be able to survive for another generation to see them and older ones were discovered underneath and we've got indications that some of the earliest have got the geometric patterns just uh, monochromatic black and white tiles um, weaved into various shapes but more elaborate and complex designs soon replacing them probably the most famous of this being the uh, cupid on a dolphin mosaic which was laid down around about the mid second century um, with the central image of, um, as pretty much described, Cupid on a dolphin. Uh, and around the four sides, you've got these semicircular panels with um, seahorses and uh, what's been described as sea panthers. Um, because if you're going to deal with mythological creatures, why not? Um, and the corners, you've got shells with the borders of interlaced ribbons and tendrils. Uh, and as I say, the imagery itself in this one particularly, it's exceptional. It's got this... Uh, this suggestion of movement, um, but later mosaics that we find in British villas show how it had, uh, how the designs had moved on, so to speak, how they became more realistic and more precise. Um, so they're not by any means the, they're not the greatest um, mosaics necessarily in of themselves, but it's more the sheer collection that, that we've got there is, is more complete than anywhere else. Um, and they also show us as well the mosaics show us some some of the damage over time i mean you might have noticed from your visits there um some of the holes these sort of circular and square holes where poles from later structures had been pierced through them um there's plow lines going through them and obviously the rather notable line through several of them from where the digger had uh, unearthed the the site itself um so we can also see how the site itself had also been used over time as well. Um, so there's that hint to, to later history. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I've got to say, mosaics are probably my most favorite thing um, that is excavated on any, any Roman. It's just, they're so de- Some of these are so detailed. I mean, my favorite... Favourite of all time is has got to be the Alexander Mosaic by oh, far. Yes. But nevertheless, you're looking at some of these details and how big these these they were. I mean, how long did it take if it was one artist, two artists, ten or twenty artists, however many, to put together this grand piece of artwork? Not only that, but for a kid from London as well, the fact that you could this is quintessential Roman Empire on a day trip from London don't have to be able to get your kids to Rome to show them it's it's a brilliant site and it's so under known every time someone says to me like oh you're into history like it's something I do as a hobby um where can I take my kids to entertain them I always tell them about Fishbourne oh, um, I mean as you say that the mosaic it's you think Romans you think mosaic it's the, the two are, are virtually inseparable and it is amazing it tiny rocks forming these elaborate images i mean yeah even elena you would love the birds at italica there's a most there's a room where there's a like masses of different birds do you know that reminds me of the one uh, in caesarea in israel where gilad took me to look at uh, this mosaic that that nobody really goes and sees it's just outside caesarea the the ancient city and it's just absolutely stunning Apart from mosaics, do we know anything more about how they decorated this in the room in this villa? Uh, yeah, so we've got um, quite a bit, as I say. So we've, we've gone through sort of a layout of, of the site itself and the gardens, which um, would have formed quite a large uh, sort of part of the impression. Um, any visitors to the palace would have had to have gone through the gardens. So you've got this impression in the gardens itself of creating the the image of power that the individual had um the richness and everything else like that from from just the gardens but then you enter into the building itself um and we know that the the walls and it's highly likely the ceilings as well would have been quite elaborately painted and decorated um again there's this scale and grandeur you're, you're creating this image of somebody important if you were going to ask him for a favor you you needed to know who you were asking for a favor from um taxes things like that this was the guy who had the full authority of the empire of rome behind him um so you had um these elaborately painted walls and ceilings um and whilst little of the wall plaster itself survives in position excavations revealed enough fragments to tell us that the style of decoration was sort of an imitation of very elaborate inlaid marble um so they were had effectively painted marble um each room would have had a mock marble dado uh, up to about a meter off the floor and corny's molding would have been then above that so you've got this um not 
yes, kind of like a skirting board, effectively, uh, effect. And above this, then, you'd have had the main wall panels um, with either this mock marble effect framed with various other stones or perhaps delicately painted flowers scenes. Um, there's one famous one that they found which shows the corner of a building with the sea in the background sort of painted on this wall panel. Um, and the doors themselves would also have been framed with marble imported from Turkey or Perbic marble, um, with the Turkish marble usually forming the top and the Perbic marble along the sides. And there's also indications of Pyrenean marble being used as wall decoration. And some of the rooms had decorated friezes of moulded stucco with birds holding fruits in their beaks, bowls of fruits, uh, or the simple egg and dart style of moulding. Uh, what's interesting about this is stucco itself is very rare in Britain. It doesn't appear to have been widely used for decoration. And Fishbourne is the only known example of this kind in the country. Uh, so again, we've got this indication of such a unique site that it must have been. Um, and it's likely that it had various marble and bronze works of art, but little evidence of this remains. Uh, we do have a marble head that was found, um, dated to late first century, which some have identified this as being uh, the Emperor Nero, aged around 13, around about the time he was adopted. Um, but others suggest that it wasn't Nero, it could have been the, the um, son of the owner. Are there any written sources found about the palace? So uh, there's no ancient sources I know of that directly reference the palace. Part of the, the whole, we'd lost it for such a lar large number of years, possibly indicate, or, um, indicated by that. Um, but there's, obviously there's a number of modern publications, uh, several by Professor uh, Cunliffe, for example, exploring the possible history of the palace, various theories that surround it. Um, as mentioned before, we do have the inscriptions, um, which hint at the possible owners and various important men from the inscriptions found at Chichester that uh, may have been once inhabited the place, but there's no sort of ancient sources that directly reference it. Did you do um, part of your work on it was to compare, wasn't it? Uh, archaeological yeah. evidence versus written evidence. Did you take Fishbourne into account for that? Uh, yeah. So uh, it formed the basis of the, um, of, of the assignment that I did uh, mainly looking at, uh, the, the problems with the ownership um, and how we use the inscription evidence along with uh, what had been found at the site to sort of tie in who may have owned Fishbourne. Uh, as I say, it's, it's a puzzle that it's unlikely unless we do unearth a source that directly attributes uh, the place to it, uh, to a particular owner. It's unlikely we'll ever fully, uh, fully know. Um, it's obvious from the site that it was used for, for governance of the area at the very least, if not for Britain, uh, Britannia as a whole, um, especially in early years. Um, as I say, when you were walking through to petition the, the governor effectively, you would have passed through this impression of power. And so it was looking at that sort of tying everything in, who actually owned Fishbourne Palace. Um, and it's one of those where... We've looked at the archaeological evidence. We've looked at the what little written evidence is, mostly those inscriptions. Um, we still don't know, but we've got a very good educated guess um, as to who owns it. And the main problem with that assignment is it was such a short assignment. I think I had a thousand words to discuss such a complex subject. Oh, wow. Um, 
you know, but the idea of obviously working on brevity, which um, is something I could continue to work on. <laughs> <laughs> we, lo- we love a thousand word essays. It's like, here's this lovely, beautiful topic. Write it in yeah. a thousand words. Mate, I can't even do an introduction in a thousand words anymore. I've been spoiled. Well, that was uh, one of the pickup points, actually. I got back from my uh, tutor on that assignment. Uh, She turned around and said that at the end she felt like I had more to say. No shit. uh, (laughs) Looking at it thinking, hmm, yeah, yeah, quite possibly I did because it's such a large subject. Um, Oh, yes, it's uh, it's a skill I'm... I'm still working on, as I say, I could probably work on my brevity for a long time and uh, both in written and speaking work sometimes. So So can you tell our listeners how they can get to the palace and any other useful details that they might need? Uh, Yeah, so it's located, as I say, just outside Chichester, which is in West Sussex in South East England. Um, It's just off of the main road leading to Chichester uh, from my way, the A32, I think it is. but it, it's fairly easy. It's well signposted in the area. Um, as I mentioned earlier, current restrictions, unfortunately, I believe it is still closed. Um, but I would suggest keeping an eye on the uh, on the web page. Look for Sussex Archaeological Society. Uh, it's one of the sites that they manage. Um, and it's definitely worth visiting. Um, I mean, for additional information, if nothing else, just to, to see the mosaics in person, um, the museum has a full collection of artifacts that you may, won't necessarily be able to get hands on with. Um, but you, you'll be able to see all these various artifacts. They've got a breakdown of the uh, Roman invasion of Britain, a mock up of how the palace would have looked at the time it was built. And they do do some hands on. So there's a fantastic um, roof tile that they pass around. And if you turn it over, there's a cat's paw prints. <laughs> where the cat had obviously walked across it while it was drying. Um, again, just that little bit of um, of history that sort of makes it a bit more real uh, as opposed to pages in a book. Um, and the fantastic work they've done at building up the portion of the garden they've got available to them, uh, it's definitely worth a visit. Um, with many sites at the moment, uh, many historical sites and zoos things like that that are struggling i I do recommend as soon as you get the chance to uh flood them with uh uh, visitors uh, obviously keeping safe in the meantime but uh yeah these sites definitely need visitors as soon as they can chris thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about fishwarm roman palace as a location and about your passion for the site and to basically sell it to people because you really should go guys it's so easy to get to and it is such a magnificent site and it's right on our doorsteps in the southeast of england and uh, not enough people know about it so thank you very much for coming on to share that with us no worries thank you very much for having me it's uh, it's been fun Join us tomorrow when Colin Fisher will be with us to talk all about Guernica. Alina has been dying to do this podcast and as usual, he's brilliant. So don't miss that. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack 
and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Elena and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them, so don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up history hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year we are now on youtube we are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms so you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time so do go over there and subscribe Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.